The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I've noticed that every time I go on Netflix these days, um, you know, they always highlight, like on the homepage, some movie or show that they're pushing on you that they want you to watch. And for weeks now, or a few weeks, it's, it's been this uh, Netflix original documentary uh, of Taylor Swift called Miss Americana. Just keeps showing up on the top of my Netflix homepage. And uh, I'm, I'm assuming it's because they're pushing this on everyone. Because it can't be based on my viewing history, okay? <laughs> I don't know why it's showing up. Uh, but finally, just actually the other day, I said, whatever. And I said, let's go for it and see what it's all about. So I watched it. Um, so within five minutes of watching it, I started taking notes. Because I realized I have the introduction for my message this Sunday. <laughs> all right? Um, It's one of the problems being a pastor is you can never fully ever just enjoy something as entertainment. It's always, can I use this for a sermon illustration, right? Um, In the last message, I talked about how underneath are surface idols, uh, like things like money and family and career are these deeper idols, like the need for security or control or the approval of others. And all these surface idols that we chase after are basically uh, fueling these much deeper idols, which point to the most profound and foundational hungers and longings of the human heart. Um, It's interesting, when you watch this Taylor Swift documentary, there are these early scenes of her basking in the glow of one of her concerts, or getting in and out of her private jet, or sitting in this huge boardroom at the head of the boarding at the head of this conference table, uh, surrounded by these high-powered music executives, and when you're seeing all this, it's it's kind of tempting to come to the conclusion that Taylor Swift's deepest idol must be power or fame, something like that. But she actually, in this rather um, honest and vulnerable way reveals what her actual idol is. Um, And she says she's had it since she was a little girl. And they show a scene of her just thumbing through her childhood journals. And Swift says this, you know, my entire moral code as a kid and now is a need to be thought of as good. It was all I wrote about. It was all I wanted. It was the complete and total belief system that I subscribed to as a kid. Do the right thing. Do the good thing. And obviously, I am not a perfect person by any stretch, but overall, the main thing that I always tried to be was a good girl. I'd been trained to be happy when you get a lot of praise. I had that praise of, Taylor, you're doing a good job at your work. You're doing a good job at being a songwriter. You're doing a good job at being a musician. Those pats on the head were all I lived for. I was so fulfilled by approval that that was it. 
I became the person who everyone wanted me to be. She's caught in this kind of candid moment in her limousine. Um, And you can tell it's right after one of her concerts is over. And she looks utterly exhausted, but also utterly exhilarated. And she says, my God, man, I'm so happy. And then interestingly, right after that, she says, everybody was so happy watching it. And there it is, the good girl who lived up to everyone's expectations and made them happy. There's this vulnerable scene when Swift is on the phone with her agent, waiting to find out if her album, Reputation, had gotten any Grammy nominations. And when she finds out that she didn't get any nominations, she she begins mumbling and repeating very nervously, this is good, this is good, this is fine. This is fine. This is good. But you know it's not fine as you see the tears welling up in her eyes. And then she says something very telling. I just need to make a better record. I'm making a better record. And you would think after everything that she had accomplished as a songwriter and a musician, everything she had accomplished in her career For Taylor Swift, there would be nothing left to prove to herself or to the world. But that's just not how it works, is it? It meant everything to her. Swift says, when you're living for the approval of strangers, and that is where you derive all your joy and fulfillment, one bad thing can cause everything to crumble. There is so much pressure going into putting new music out. If I don't beat everything I've done prior it'll be deemed as a colossal failure. And as we've seen in this series, that's exactly what idols do to us, isn't it? They promise us everything, but end up demanding everything of us. After winning Album of the Year for the second time, which I don't believe any other artist had done at that time, she said this. I remember thinking afterward, oh my God, that was all you wanted. And then she says in this much darker tone of understanding, oh, God, that's all you wanted. That was all you focused on. You get to the mountaintop and you look around and you're like, oh, God, what now? It's interesting, much of our life is spent chasing our idols. But as Taylor Swift discovered, sometimes the best cure for idolatry is to actually get what you so desperately want so that we can realize that those things cannot ultimately satisfy us. Later on in the documentary, Swift shares this moment when she realizes she couldn't live like this anymore. And she says this, We are people who got into this line of work because we wanted people to like us, because we were intrinsically insecure, because we liked the sound of people clapping, because it made us forget how much we feel like we're not good enough. And I've been doing this for 15 years, and I'm tired of it. I had to deconstruct an entire belief system for my own personal sanity. What a powerful illustration of the enslaving destruction that idolatry can cause 
in our lives. Could I ask you this question? How do you know when you have found deliverance from your idols? If you could offer a single word answer to that question, what word would that be? I think the word that I would choose is rest. Rest. The kind of rest that God alone can give to us. As Augustine said, you have made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Jesus, I think, argues as much in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30, when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As we saw in the previous message, the prophets portray the idols as impotent gods who promised to save us. But in the end, they prove to be utterly useless. And all they do is they increase their burdens on us. And so instead of delivering us, we end up having to carry them around everywhere on our shoulders. Because as the prophets say, because these are just dead and powerless gods who are not gods at all. And in contrast to that, Jesus says, I, the living God, your Savior, can give you the true rest that you've been longing for all your life. What's confusing about this invitation, though, is that Jesus uses a metaphor that is not normally associated with rest and relaxation. A yoke is a harness that farmers put around the necks of oxen in order to control them for plowing. So Jesus says, it sounds so inviting. He says, I will give you this rest that you're longing for. So let me just put this heavy wooden beam around your neck. (laughs) And it's going to get you there (laughs) to that rest. How in the world is tying a heavy block of wood around our neck like a beast of burden, an invitation to rest? What I believe Jesus is saying is this. There is a process of discipline and training that we have to undergo if we are going to experience the rest that Jesus promises us. Look at the way the prophet Jeremiah portrays the heart of idolatry. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 20 to 21 and 23 to 25, it says, long ago you broke off your yoke And tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? How can you say I am not defiled? I have not run after the bales. See how you behaved in the valley. Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving, in her heat who can resist, restrain her. Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time they will find her. Do not run until your feet are bare. 
and your throat is dry. But you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods, and I must go after them. This is really rated our language that God is using here to get his point across. He describes this heart of idolatry like being planted as a choice vine by a loving gardener, and then suddenly you turn into this wild weed that is just growing out of control, or like an animal in heat that cannot control themselves but are sniffing the air everywhere to look for any kind of mate because any mate will do. It is the picture of passion and desire that has gone totally out of control. Isaiah 55 verse 1 to 2, I think, puts it like this in a slightly different way. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. What Isaiah is saying is this. When we worship idols, it is like people with distorted appetites, dying of thirst and starvation. And what he's saying is you are throwing your money away, consuming garbage. That isn't real food. You're fooled into consuming this junk that can never satisfy when I think of this verse, I think of all the junk food that we eat in America. It's interesting, since the 1970s, it's now been discovered that the food manufacturers in America have made a concerted effort to consistently, over the decade, increase the levels of sugar and salt in their products. And they did this intentionally because they knew that we would get more addicted to their food. And so with this change that began in the 70s came an explosion of obesity and hypertension and diabetes and heart disease and all of the medical problems we're facing in our generation today. There was just so little nutritional value in many of the foods that we eat. But we can't stop eating it, right? Why? Because our appetites have been altered to crave this junk that's no good for us. I remember I was watching this food show and this farm-to-table chef was talking about how she grew up in this kind of quirky family where they had never eaten fast food their entire childhood. And she was given this Big Mac as an adult and she actually vomited. (laughs) And she could not understand how anyone could eat a Big Mac arguing this is not real food. It was weird. As she was saying this, I felt a bit hurt (laughs) and personally attacked (laughs) by her because I actually like Big Macs. And I had this thought. How can I crave something that makes somebody else vomit? (laughs) But what Isaiah is saying is that's exactly what is happening with idolatry. Our appetites and desires have become so twisted that we crave the things that can never actually satisfy. We reject the real food and go for the garbage. 
God provides a solution to these twisted and distorted appetites and desires. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, it says this. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. In other words, the way we find true rest for our wandering hearts is to rediscover, Jeremiah says, these ancient paths. The images of these well-worn paths that are deeply grooved because of all the people that have traveled on it so many times. It is the picture of discipline that is very similar to the yoke that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 11. In other words, the cure for our wayward desires and idolatrous heart is the retraining of our loves. To love God and to love the things that God loves. Throughout the series, I've been emphasizing the fact that worship is not about our heads alone, but it's about the heart, which in biblical terms captures our rational minds, but also includes our emotions, our will, our desires, the core of everything that we are. That's why we can't just think our ways out of idolatry. We can't just hear a good sermon on a Sunday and then solve the problem of idolatry. It takes so much more than that. You know, I had this roommate in medical school. Uh, I won't name him. <laughs> but uh, he, uh, it was interesting. You know, I lived with uh, four other uh, medical students in this uh, house. And uh, he was a smoker. And it freaked all of us out. We're like, how can you smoke and you're going to be a doctor? And we tried. We, made, we would gang up on him and just, you know, try to convince him. You got to quit, man. Uh, and throughout our medical training, I mean, it gets drilled into you, indoctrinated into you as a doctor in training how wicked smoking is. You know, it's like every single disease is connected to smoking, it seems like. We even, in our pathophysiology lab, actually held the blackened lungs of an ex-smoker, you know? And that's, that's a real, that's a really, uh, you know, powerful experience to do that. But despite all of that, to the very end of our medical school training, he didn't quit smoking. And as far as I know, he still smokes today. Knowledge is never enough for change, for changing the things particularly that are so deeply rooted in our hearts. It takes more than knowledge. Uh, I don't know if you know this guy, uh, Dustin Sandlin. He, he produces this educational YouTube series called Smarter Every Day. And in one of the episodes, he actually presented this challenge of riding what's called a backwards bicycle. And I'm just going to show you little clips of that video. And so we'll just watch it, and then I'll say some comments on it. Like many six-year-olds with a MacGyver mullet, I learned how to ride a bike when I was really young. I had learned a life skill, and I was really proud of it. Everything changed, though, when my friend Barney called me 25 years later. Where I work, the welders are geniuses, and they like to play jokes on the engineers. 
He had a challenge for me. He had built a special bicycle and he wanted me to try to ride it. He had only changed one thing. When you turn the handlebar to the left, the wheel goes to the right. When you turn it to the right, the wheel goes to the left. I thought this would be easy, so I hopped on the bike ready to demonstrate how quickly I could conquer this. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Destin Salem. First attempt riding the bicycle. I couldn't do it. You can see that I'm laughing, but I'm actually really frustrated. In this moment, I had a really deep revelation. My thinking was in a rut. This bike revealed a very deep truth to me. I had the knowledge of how to operate the bike, but I did not have the understanding. Therefore, knowledge is not understanding. I do not make definitive statements that often, but I'm telling you right now, you cannot ride this bicycle. You might think you can, but you can't. I know this because I'm often asked to speak at universities and conferences and I take the bike with me. It's always the same. People think they're going to try some trick or they're just going to power through it. It doesn't work. Your brain cannot handle this. For instance, this guy. I offered him $200 just to ride this bike 10 feet across the stage. Everybody thought he could do it. No, you didn't understand. You didn't understand. So, this way. No, no, you have to keep your feet on the ground. All right, let's get it together. Just Like, you gotta start rolling at least. And go. Oh, God! All right, back up. Okay, Keep your feet on the pedal. Go. Once you have a rigid way of thinking in your head, sometimes you cannot change that, even if you want to. <laughs> you know, when I first um, imagined riding this backward bike, I thought the trick was going to only show up when you're trying to make a turn, you know? When you get the turn, you just got to remember to make sure you go the opposite direction from where you want to go. But as it turns out, What's happening when you ride a bike is you're making just thousands of these little micro-corrections that when you have actually learned to ride a bike are so instinctive and ingrained in you, you don't even think of it. And you're doing it just to keep your balance on that bike for a second. And when you're told all you have to do now is reverse that, you know it in your head. But this behavioral pattern is so built into you that that knowledge is useless, right? You still cannot ride this bicycle. You can actually buy one of these bikes for $600. I was thinking about doing it and maybe trying that in our church. We just don't have a budget for it. Maybe if our church gets bigger, we'll do tricks like that. Okay, I don't know. All right. Um, but there are these instinctive habits of bike riding that are so deeply ingrained in all of us that when it's reversed, we just cannot correct it no matter how hard we try. As Sandlin says, knowledge does not equal understanding. It was interesting. Sandlin became determined to override those instincts and learn how to ride this bike. Do you know how long it took him? 
of concerted, regular effort, eight months. It took him eight months to ride this bike. Interestingly, his son did it in two weeks, which kind of shows how much more, you know, flexible the child's brain is to the adult. In the same way, we don't think our way out of our, into our idolatries, do we? We didn't rationalize our way into our idolatries. We desired our way into them. In other words, our idols capture our hearts and we worship them, repeatedly giving ourselves to them until our devotion to them becomes a deeply ingrained habit of the soul. That's what's happening in idolatry. And so if we want to abandon these idols, we must take up the yoke that Jesus offers, entering into the disciplines that can upturn these destructive habits and ingrain new ones that can lead us into love of God and the things that he loves. It's interesting, I, I spent um, many hours on almost every Saturday when I'm preaching, typing up my sermon manuscript. And as I do, am doing that, there is always this temptation to stress eat. Once Betty realized I was going to return to pastoral ministry after we came back from the mission field, one of her first comments to me was, oh, no, you're going to gain weight. <laughs> because she knows that I stress eat when I preach. And particularly as it gets into the later hours of the evening, I naturally gravitate toward all the garbage stuff, like ice cream and cookies and chips. But a couple months back, I actually chose not to do that, and I began to grab for an apple. And the first time I did it, it was a very similar experience to swallowing medicine. Okay? <laughs> it's the most unsatisfactory feeling of fullness in my stomach. <laughs> but here was the thing was after doing this week after week after week, I actually began to crave apples as the evening wore on. In other words, by disciplining myself to eat apples instead of junk food, my appetite actually started changing. I think this is what spiritual disciplines like solitude and reading scripture and prayer and worship are all about. The spiritual disciplines help us develop habits which reorient our loves toward God and the things that are on his heart. So as we are delving into scripture reading, God is reminding us of his love and his goodness and his desire for a relationship with us. And through prayer, we grow in intimacy in our relationship with him, letting him know the things that burden our hearts. And as we enter into these things, God is little by little changing our desires and our appetites. Um, I, I don't normally do this in a sermon, but I actually want to throw in a little plug right now for our journey groups, okay? Because we're about to start cohort number three with them in a little bit. And in a few weeks, I'll make a much fuller announcement about it. But that's exactly what this journey groups program is all about. It's just getting together with two other people in this church and just walking together through a practice of these disciplines. And seeing, how can I inculcate these habits 
in my life that can reshape my desires. James Smith says this, If love is both habit and hunger, then our tastes and cravings for what's ultimate will be changed in the same way. Reflection is important, but reflection should propel us into new practices that will reform our hungers by inscribing new habits. The church, the body of Christ, is the place where God invites us to renew our loves, reorient our desires, and retrain our appetites. Indeed, isn't the church where we are nourished by the word, where we eat the word and receive the bread of life? The church is that household where the spirit feeds us what we need and where by his grace we become a people who desire him above all else. Christian worship is the feast where we acquire new hungers for God and for what God desires and are then sent into his creation to act accordingly. Our sanctification, the process of becoming holy and Christ-like, is more like Weight Watchers program than listening to a book on tape. If sanctification is tantamount to closing the gap between what I know and what I do, it means changing what I want. And that requires submitting ourselves to disciplines and regimens that reach down into our deepest habits. The Spirit of God meets us in that space, in that gap, not with lightning bolts of magic, but with the concrete practices of the body of of Christ that conscript our bodily habits. If we think of sanctification as learning to put on or clothe ourselves with Christ, this is intimately bound up with becoming incorporated into his body, the Corpus Christi. Now, I want to absolutely affirm this, is that true freedom from idolatries is only powerful through the saving work of Jesus Christ, not by human effort. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1-5 to says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. What John is saying is without the power of God, without the saving work of God in our lives, there is no ability to actually overcome our idols. In our human efforts, we are powerless. And so we need that work of God in our lives so that we can actually even love the things that God loves, even loving God himself. But there is also a part that we play in this work of transformation that he is doing in us. And the way Jesus described it is by accepting the yoke that I place on you. Jesus calls it an easy yoke because we aren't left to do this by our own strength, but by the power that he provides for us. Jen Pollock Michelle says, if Jesus is king, our desires are turned upside down. We owe no more loyalty to the idols of status and popularity. If Jesus is king, we no longer bow at the feet of prestige and comfort, money, sex, and power. These are the gods dethroned when the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When we are truly announcing the lordship of Jesus, we must make it clear that according to this gospel, the one true God has dealt in Jesus Christ with sin, death, guilt, and shame, and now summons men and women everywhere to abandon the idols which hold them captive to those things and to discover a new life, a new way of life in him. Jesus is king, is the pledge of allegiance to the one true God. 
The faith transaction which I'd grown up believing was the moment I confessed my sin and claimed ownership of heaven had far more profound implications for my life than simply determining where I would spend eternity after I died. I belonged to Christ and his kingdom. This laid claim to my deepest desires here and now. So as I close out the message this morning, I want to ask you this question. Do you know that rest that Jesus promises to us? Or do you actually identify more with Taylor Swift and the restlessness of a soul that had achieved everything by worldly standards? And yet when she reached that mountaintop, looked out and said, is this it? Oh my God, is this all? The rest that Jesus promises is real. And it is the only thing that will give the answer to your longing, your deepest longing of your soul. I want to end the message today by reading some verses out of a couple of David's psalms. I mentioned when we were doing this Life of David series that despite all of David's weaknesses and failures, it is never actually once recorded that David struggled with idolatry. Now, this doesn't mean that he didn't struggle with idolatry, but at least I think it's fair to say I don't think it was a major part of his life because almost every other king in Israel's history is noted to have committed idolatry, except David. What that's saying is, is this. In his greatest triumphs and victories, as well as in his darkest moments of sadness or defeat or failure, David had nurtured a habit of turning to God in worship over and over again in his life. David wrote Psalm 34 when he was forced to flee into the wilderness because Saul was going to kill him. And he ended up feeling like the only place where he could go for safety was oddly enough to Philistia, land of his enemies, the Philistines. And once he got there, they discovered his identity. And the Philistines said, hey, isn't this the guy that the Jews call the Philistine killer? And they want to kill him. And so there with King Achish, he just thinks on the fly and does the only thing he can think to save his life. And he starts drooling like a madman and acting crazy and starts scribbling nonsense on the gates until the king just says, this guy's just a shell of the man he once was. Get him out of my presence. And this had to have been one of the lowest moments of David's life. And yet even immediately following that moment, David would write this song of praise to God. Psalm 34 verses 1 to 10 says this. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. That reflection theme we talked about. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. And then David says this, Taste and see 
that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. What an awesome testimony of a heart completely abandoned to God. Psalm 40 echoes a similar sentiment, another psalm of David. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 8. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. I think many of you can identify with the sentiments that David is expressing in these songs because you too have experienced that saving work of God in your life. To know that whatever circumstances that you are facing, there is a joy that this world cannot touch. You know, that quote, that extended quote that I just read from James Smith, uh, he points out in it how important the community of the church is in this process of spiritual formation, of becoming a committed part of the body of Christ. And I would say, worshiping together like we do every Sunday is such a vital process part of that process of retraining our loves to love God and the things he loves. As we testify to one another of the goodness of God and his worthiness to alone be worshipped and praised in our lives. I'm not exaggerating when I say this. But one of the greatest highlights of my entire week is when we sing those two closing songs at the end of our worship. I look forward to that moment more than almost any moment in the course of a week. Because every time we do that, it is this retraining and redirecting of my heart that so easily starts bending toward the things of this world. And when I hear your voices singing with passion, and love for God. It reminds me and my wayward heart that God alone is worthy of our worship. He alone deserves our praise. Let's pray. You know, the idolatrous heart is a restless heart. It's a heart that is eternally searching, eternally dissatisfied. 
eternally longing and yet never fulfilled. Isaiah would describe it as a distorted appetite in which we're craving all of the wrong things, eating garbage and dying of thirst and starvation. But the work of God in our lives is to reorient our loves to the things that can actually nourish us and feed our soul. As Augustine said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Can I ask, do you know that rest of God? Do you know the rest that Jesus promises? Maybe for some of you, you don't. Even though you come to church week after week, you know your heart is restless. Maybe this day God is inviting you to surrender your life to Christ and cast your burdens on him. Or some of you actually know that experience of tasting and knowing that the Lord is good. But we know that there is a spiritual battle always and our hearts get pulled toward other things. And maybe this is the day for you to be reminded and say, God alone is worthy of my praise. He alone is worthy of my worship. And you can rededicate your heart to him and say, God, set me free by your power from these idols that hold me in bondage. I want to remember the rest that I once knew. Give that rest to me. 